0: You know who I hate? Okay, hate's kind of strong. Um, you know who I have a hard time not hating? <laughs> okay, well, it's not about them, but it's about what they do, what I hate about what they do. You know, people, people who hurt and people who mistreat my children. Uh, if you're a parent, you get where I'm coming from, right? Because for us parents, it's usually nothing even that extreme. Um, It's that older kid that pushes past my daughter, pushes aside to, to cut in line to get on the slide first and I, I stand up and I take a step forward and Rachel grabs the back of my shirt and says, Brian, he's like five. I'm like, okay, calm it down, calm it down. It's that unfair teacher who uh, just didn't get how talented my daughter was. Or, or that netball coach that puts, my do- that puts their daughter in the game instead of my daughter because obviously my daughter's better and they want to protect their own daughter. Um, but what really breaks my heart is when those people are friends of my children. When I see their friends take advantage of them. When I see their friends say hurtful things to them. Um, When I see their friends set my daughter up for failure or set them up for embarrassment or stabs them in the back. And here's the thing. Here's the thing about when you do that. There's no point after that point. There's no point in trying to make peace with me. Don't even try. If you hurt one of my kids, there's no point in even coming and talking to me about it, trying to be nice about it. Because if you've done something to one of my kids, you can give me gifts. You can serve me. You can do something nice for me. You can sing my praises. You can praise my holy name. But there is nothing you can do to compensate for mistreating one of my kids. But the reverse of that is also true. The best thing you can do, the best thing you can do is to do something good for my kids. Or to apologize to one of my kids and make things right with my kids. The most honoring thing you can do has nothing to do. The most honoring thing, honoring thing you can do for me has nothing to do with me at all. The most honoring thing you could do for me... Is to love and to show honor and show respect and do something nice and good for one of my kids. It's the strangest things, right? Parents. It's weird. I wonder if that's how God thinks. I wonder if that's when He watches us and that's what's going through His mind. We're at part five of the series called New, And if you're coming to the end, you know, we're kind of coming to the end of the movie. We've wrapped this up next week. And the premise of the entire series has been pretty simple. It's this. The arrival of Jesus signaled the end of the temple system. And the beginning of something entirely, entirely new. And that challenges us. That challenges our idea of what's right and what's wrong. Our consciences. Um, The things that have shaped us to believe what religion should be like. What our version of Christianity should be like. Has been mixed up with a little bit of Jesus and a whole lot of temple thinking. So consequently, the thing that makes us feel guilty. And the things that we don't feel guilty about are all kind of backwards often. They're not actually tuned in to what Jesus taught. Here's what I mean. The temple system, little review, is caught up around these kind of presumptions, right? There's always sacred places, right? You gotta be quiet when you walk in. You gotta be reverent when you walk in. You gotta, you know, if your baby's too loud, you gotta take your baby out, because this is a sacred place, right? There's always sacred texts and and oracles or documents or parchments, and they've been translated and copied over and over and over for people. And there's always sacred men. Always men. Sacred men who control the sacred texts in that sacred place. And then you have sincere followers, or superstitious followers, or scared followers, or scarred followers, or followers who just don't know any better, don't know what to do, not, don't know what they don't know. And they're very, very dependent on these sacred men who control and interpret the sacred texts that are housed in these sacred places. And the problem is Jesus came around and messed it all up. And he came along and he came along and introduced something brand new. And when he launched this new movement, this brand new movement, it wasn't like a different version of the temple system. It was absolutely new, unheard of. And this is what that model looked like. It was a new covenant, a new way to relate to God a new way to approach your relationship with God. And there was a new command, and the new command didn't sound so new until he said what to do with this new command, which I want you to filter every other command through this new command, which started a new ethic, a new way of life, a new way that all followers of Jesus would behave in this kind of way. And this new ethic, this new behavior called this thing that we now refer to as church. And here we are today. But there's a problem with that. There's a blending. Maybe we did some history work last week. There's some blending of the old with the new. And as a result, the, the temple system kind of snuck back in to the Jesus way of life. And we started to approach Christianity in a way that holds us back holds us back individually, which is what we're going to look at today, and holds us back as a community, as a church, in the way we can impact and and be a gift to everybody in our world. For example, the way it holds you back, if you ever feel more guilty about missing church or more guilty about, I didn't really read my Bible this week, than you do about how you mistreated somebody at work or at school, that's a whole lot of temple model mixed in with a little bit of Christianity. Um, if you kind of think it doesn't really matter how I treat the other person, I don't even actually think about how I treat that other person as long as I get to the sacred place and I get to go to church and hear some sacred things from a sacred man, that somehow supersedes how we treat others. Temple thinking is where that comes from. If you ever thought about how close you can get to sin, right to the edge without actually sinning, you know, that's temple thinking. You think... You know, I wonder, if, is this really a sin? Is, I mean, I, I love, I love that this can't be a sin. Really? Is this a sin? It is. Really? But what if I feel or, or what if they're like? See, the question is basically what you're really asking is, look, I want to get as far down the sin road because it's as fun as I can go without ticking off God. Tell me where I got to stop. If you believe that some ritual in light of that makes things right with God, removes your responsibility to make things right with each other, the people you've harmed, that you can go through some formality about it. You know, the Baptist version is to come to church, sing, pray, say sorry, take a piece of bread and a glass, a little cup of juice, and I'm good. The Catholic version, go to Mass, go to confession, you're good. So you think that there might be some hoops that you can jump through and make things right between you and God to remove your obligation to make restitution with the person you've hurt. Temple thinking. It's not the Jesus way. It's not the Jesus movement. See, if your views on religion keep you from loving somebody else, temple thinking. And at the heart of it, and that's where we're going to go today, it's so subtle. At the heart of the temple system, the heart of temple thinking is that it's really all about you. See, the temple system is actually you centered? Because at the heart of the temple model is this question. It's a good question to start with. It's not that the question is so bad. It's just not a good question if that's your only question. And you keep asking it every week and every week and every week. And the question is, what must I do or what must I believe to make things right and to keep things right between me and God? Because at the end of the day, my religion is all about me all about me. My whole version of Christianity is all about me. Me trying to make things right with God. Make sure that God is okay with me and at the center of that approach to God, God's not at the center of that. We are at the center of that. For some of us, that's the only way we pray. Thank you, God, that you made this such a good day for me. Please help my kids. Please watch over me as I travel. Please watch over me as I take this test. Please watch over me while I start this really hard job. Bless me. Watch over me. Help me. Amen. For some of us, it's the way we attend church. Hey, God, did you see that I was here on Sunday morning? No, don't talk about Friday. I don't want to talk about Friday night. I'm here Sunday morning because of Friday night. So I just want you to look at me right now and tell me that I'm all right. I'm about to take the bread and the cup. I'm going to take a little bit of time. I'm sorry, God. Munch, munch, drink, drink. Okay, all things good. See, it kind of is a God-centered thing. It kind of looks like it's about God, but at the end of the day, the whole approach to religion, your whole approach to Christianity, your whole approach to following Jesus is actually all about me. It's all about you. And you probably even said this to yourself. You probably thought this or said this to others. Man, I really got to get back to church. I I just got to get back to church. I really got to start reading my Bible again. Oh, man, I got to get back in the Word. Well, who's that about? It's about me because I really need to get back in the church. I need to get my life together. I need to get my act together. I need to break this habit. I need to stop doing whatever. I, 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 I. See, temple thinking is all about rules. It's all about rituals. Christian temp- temple thinking always leads you towards rules and rituals, which means you start asking this question. You start asking, what exactly do I need to do to make things right? Like, give me a list. How much? How often? Where? Again, good question, initially, but eventually, if your Christian faith is all based on that and never moves beyond what it is for you and how you keep God happy, and, you know, I think, I think it'll be okay. If I attend church every other week, I think, I think that'll be good. I, actually, once a month. Once, I'll watch it online. I should be fine. I should be fine. Life groups, I don't really need a life group. I, don't, I mean, I'm not going to share a bunch of strangers. I, I think I'm okay. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna read the Bible too. I'll read the Bible. I'll read it. I don't know, five minutes a day ought to do it. That'll keep me uh, five times a week. Uh, well, actually, maybe five minutes a week. Uh, anyone see my Bible? And all of a sudden we go down this road, and like, where did this go? And because temple thinking is all about rules and all about rituals and and the rules and rituals that you make up yourself to help you feel good about yourself and God, it leads to loophole thinking. It leads to uh, exceptions to the rule kind of thinking. And we stop asking and we start just quietly thinking and then we start answering our own questions for ourselves. How close to sin can I get without ticking God off too much? I mean, he'll forgive me. He, he forgives everybody. Because ultimately, it's all about me getting what I want without losing God's blessing and losing God's favor. And rituals become escape clauses. And that's what produces church Christian hypocrites. And that's why so many people hate the church. And why so many people hate Christian people, why so many people won't go to church because they've met too many Christians and they talk a good talk and they, they talk about going to church on Sunday, but man, I watch how they work Monday through Friday. I don't know if I want to be a part of that. It doesn't seem to bother them the way they treat others. They're actually quite proud of what they say about certain others and the way they talk about other people. So why even bother with this church thing? And it's a very, 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 very subtle form of self-centered religion, that Jesus invites us to abandon completely. Because the Jesus model is something different. The Jesus model is centered on the other beside you. The Jesus model is focused on the person sitting to your left and to your right. If you vote labor, the Jesus model centers on the person to your right. If you vote national, the Jesus model centers on the person to your left. If you are racist, the Jesus model centers on the person you want nothing to do with. It centers on the other that you have a bad attitude towards. It centers on the other you would call an enemy. And following Jesus is an invitation to leave behind all that that's about and embrace the other that is right beside you. And you've take, if you take this one idea, this one idea, and filter everything you read in the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the Apostle Paul, the teachings of Peter, the entire New Testament will come alive. It'll jump from the pages into, into your mind and to your heart in a way that you've never, ever seen before. Because people all through the New Testament are invited to love people the way our Heavenly Father loved them. And that's what it's all about. And that's why Jesus can say, let's see if I can get this back here again. That's why Jesus can say, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I loved you. This is my commandment. This is my one commandment, Jesus says. I just have one. It's why the Apostle Paul can get away with saying, look, the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts, wait, wait, the Bible's really thick. Have you seen it, Paul? It's really, there's a lot of stuff here. You wrote like over half of it. The only thing that counts is expressing my faith through love. That's why Paul can quote what Jesus said, that the entire law is fulfilled. The entire law and all the other 630 laws that we've added to it. Plus those 10 commandments from the Old Testament, all that. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And this is where I got to ask you, wake up. I need you to pay attention from here on out because this is where we completely depart from temple thinking. It represents a complete 100% departure from church, a 100% departure. Departure from church thinking. It's a complete departure. Now let me illustrate. Um, this is stuff I'm gonna illustrate now. You might want to memorize this. You might want to take really good notes at this point because you might want to illustrate this kind of stuff. Do you know why you should tell the truth? And like, yeah, I know that one. I know that one because it's in the Bible. Thou shalt not lie. It says something like that. You should tell the truth because the Bible says don't lie. Wrong. Wrong answer, even though it's true. You know why you should tell the truth? Because temple thinking says you tell the truth because it's in the Bible. The Bible says tell the truth. Jesus model thinking says I tell the truth because when you lie, you hurt the person you lie to. The The Jesus model says the reason you don't lie is because when you lie, you're covering for yourself at someone else's expense. You're throwing somebody else under the bus instead of owning your own stuff. When you lie, you're saying to the person you lie to, you're not worthy of the truth. And whatever is best for me is secondary. You come secondary to what's best for me. See, the reason Christians shouldn't lie has nothing to do with the fact that God said in the Bible, don't lie. The reason God said in the Bible, don't lie, is because God's concern About the people that you'll be tempted to lie to. See the change? Subtle, but there's a change. Temple thinking says, I'm gonna tell the truth so God will love me. Jesus says, No, you tell the truth because you love people. Let's do another test. Do you know why you're supposed to be generous? You know why you're supposed to be generous? Oh, I, I know that. It's in the Bible. I know this one, it's in the Bible. If I give God a dollar, he'll give me like 10 bucks back, right? That's it, right? Yeah, no, no. You live in New Zealand, you've already got your 10 bucks. We were born with 10 bucks in our pocket. We live in a a safe place. We're so far ahead from the rest of the world. You know why we're supposed to give? You know why we're supposed to be generous? Because if we give, ah, I know, if you give, then that's because God will then bless everything because God likes a cheerful giver, so as long as I give with a smile on my face and I think I'm being cheerful, well then God gives to a cheerful givers. So God likes us. At nah, nah, nah. You know why we're supposed to be generous as Christians? Because now this is complicated. All right, this is complicated. You might want to take notes now. Write this down. I'm gonna go really slow because when you're generous, it helps the person you're generous to. <laughs> Right? Am I right? Let me go over it again because it's complex. Financial climate these days is pretty hard. The reason that Christians are supposed to be the most generous people in the world is because when we're generous, it helps the world. How about this one? Let's do some of the shout nots. You know why you shouldn't talk bad about somebody? Oh, I know this one. <laughs> this is in the Bible. I remember this from youth group stuff. I know why. You shall not gossip. Or something like that. Malicious language or hate speech or something, angry speech. Because apparently, since God wrote the Bible, God doesn't want you to gossip. So that's why we don't gossip. No, that's temple thinking. The reason you don't gossip is because it hurts somebody else. Gossiping, spreading rumors, undermines somebody else's integrity in the mind of the person you're gossiping to. The reason you shouldn't gossip is that when you gossip, you elevate yourself at somebody else's expense, and that's what bugs God. That's why you don't gossip. Even if it wasn't in the B-I-B-L-E, you should not gossip because you're smart enough to know that gossip hurts other people. What about that is hard to understand? You cannot love your neighbor as yourself and gossip or lie or be stingy. Here's one. Here's one. Oh, this is a good one. Okay, guys, lean in. You know why, guys? Guys, you know why you should not pressure your girlfriends sexually? <laughs> that's an easy one. I mean, we're sitting in church, right? This is an easy one because the Bible says sex is like for married people. I get it. I get. It. I know all that. What else you got? Because this is easy. I get this. No, that's not it. The reason you shouldn't pressure your girlfriend sexually is because when you do bad things morally. Like, oh, okay, I know when you do bad things morally, then life isn't going to work out right, right? Or, or you might get caught. And you have to pay the price later on. There might be consequences. That's why you don't do it. And when things aren't right between you and God, things can go bad. So I got to keep things right with God so things go good. Nah, that's not it. But you had heard that kind of talk before. The reason you don't pressure your girlfriend sexually is because when you pressure another person to do something they don't want to do, you create regret. For them, And followers of Jesus don't create regret for other people. In other words, to follow Jesus means when somebody tells the story about their greatest regret, they don't talk about you. That when somebody's in a counseling session, going through counseling about when they were hurt and when they're counseling, your name doesn't come up. Because in that moment, when you are tempted to pressure them sexually, you realize, wait a second, I actually don't need a verse for this. I'm trying to impose my will on somebody else. That's not love your neighbor as yourself. That's love yourself at the expense of your neighbor. So we don't do that. You don't hurt you and you don't hurt other people. See, I wonder how often God thinks, really, did you really need a Bible verse for that? Was it not obvious? You, I mean, you're going through the Bible, really? Really? You don't need need a Bible verse for every single thing. Do you really have to have a whole Bible study to understand that you don't do things that create regret for other people? Do you really need me to speak directly to the very specific thing you're thinking about doing right now? Do you really need me to show you a proof text right now? and, And then just knowing that again next week it'll be something else and you want another proof text on that? Do we really have to go deeper than love your neighbor as yourself? You see, here's the bottom line. Biblical imperatives, all the commands of all the Bible, New Testament, Old Testament, biblical imperatives are examples how to demonstrate your love for God by the way you love other people. It's not a rule book. It's a story. It's a letter. God didn't give us an example for everything that came out. Like he was going to write about chat DPT. Do not use this when you should be writing your own work. That's not in the Bible anywhere. Because God didn't need to give you an example for everything. It's when people are looking for loopholes. And they're looking for workarounds. That's when they get all in a tizzy. And they get all, oh, it's so hard following God. I just, it's so much pressure. And the discussions and the arguments that take place only fo- focus on one thing. The Bible doesn't say this, and it doesn't say that. And I don't think the Bible actually meant that. And our Heavenly Father's like, Really? He's watching these arguments around moral issues and identity issues and all these things like, really, I didn't have to cover everything. I was just giving you some examples of what it means to love other people. Demonstrations on how you love me by the way you love your neighbor. The entire Old Testament, all the laws, all the prophets hung on two ideas, two ideas, love God, love your neighbor. When you read the Apostle Paul, when you read uh, all the different books of the Bible, all the teachings of Paul and Peter and the New Testament, everything is just an example of. Everything is just an illustration of. Everything is just a commentary on. It's, it's applications of what it means to love God by loving your neighbor. And they're not there for your benefit Although you will benefit when you live this way. They're not there for God's benefit. He's fine. God's okay. I'm like, I'm in heaven. I created this. I'm watching you guys trying to figure it out. They're there for the benefit of the people that are in your life. Your family, your friends, your neighbors, your workmates, your schoolmates. You and I have been called to love them. They are there for the sake of others. Just like Jesus came for the sake of others. The way Jesus came for the sake of you, and you, and you, and me. Now, real quick, I can understand that where I'm going here. You're like, man, he was just dumbing this thing down so low. This is so lowest common denominator stuff. He's ignoring really important details. I mean, the world is complex. And it's like, you know what? I bet he wouldn't saw that Jesus Revolution movie. I bet he saw that and he's all hippied out and wants HCBC to be a big love fest and we're just all going to get along and we just love one another and we're like a bunch of mooloo Christian hippies. It's that movie. I blame the movie. And everything's just going to work out except, except love one another isn't actually all that easy. It's just the opposite. The Jesus model is less complicated, Simple that's a lot more demanding. It's a whole lot more demanding. Less complicated, but far more demanding. Because at the epicenter of the Christian faith is a man who those closest to him believed he had come from God. At the center of the Christian faith is a man who actually was the Son of God. At the center of the Christian faith and all of Jesus' teaching is a man who died covered in his own blood and the spit of other people. And that's what love one another looks like. That's how far this goes. That's what this requires. It's a whole lot more simple. I can remember this one thing, but so much more demanding. And here's how I know that. The easiest place to hide from love one another is church. It's church. The easiest place to hide is in the temple approach. To Christianity. Because you can say things like, excuse me, I don't, I don't really know what that means. Are, are you sure that's what the original language said? Um, look, I don't think Jesus ever really mentioned that. Uh, you know, I know Paul said this here, but he also said this over here. And they kind of contradict with each other. So I, I think this might be somewhere in the middle. You know, God is love and love is blind. And, you know, I think Stevie Wonder might be God because he's blind. and You just kind of make this stuff up. And, I, you know, I think... I think you got a good point, but I think I just need to pray about it for a while. I just got to pray about it, and then I'll see what God wants me to do. See, in temple religion, there's always a loophole. In temple religion, you can always find a workaround, especially the Christian version of it. But it's hard. It's hard, hard, hard to get around stuff like this. It's hard to get around verses like, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. It's hard to find a loophole in that. It's hard to find a loophole in verses like this. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Really, there's got to be a way around this. Seriously? It is really hard to find a loophole in that. Or be merciful. How merciful? Be merciful just as your father is merciful. See, this is why the Christian faith is so outrageous, so spectacular, so amazing. Because when you follow Jesus, there is nowhere to hide. No shortcuts. No loopholes. No workarounds. Because, let's be really honest, for just a moment. In most cases, in most instances, every single relational situation we intuitively know is found in the answer of, Where, I don't know where it is. (laughs) I'll just go with it. Where, what does love require of me? I mean, you can Bible verse yourself to death. You can Old Testament yourself to death. You can rationalize yourself to death. You can hide in the temple every single Sunday morning. You can loophole your way out of application in the temple. But intuitively, we always know the answer to the question, what does love require of me? This is the essence of following Jesus. And again, if you think it's simple, if you think it's easy, if you think I'm watering this stuff down too far, just remember when your heavenly father, when God in heaven answered this question, it cost him his son. When Jesus, when he answered the question, it cost him his life. And then he said, follow me. What? Seriously? He goes, follow me. It's simple. You simply answer the question and act on the answer to the question, What does love require of me? Everything else is commentary, everything else is illustration, everything else is taking a three minute sermon, and I'm stretching out to about 35 today. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what would happen in our families if we just did that? Could you imagine what might happen in your family if everything went through the filter of what does love require of me? Imagine our city. What if every Christian in Hamilton City of all denominations and all styles and all all ethnicities for just one month, for just one month made life decisions around what does love require of me? See, when the first century church met, they had no structure, no liturgy, no Bible there were rich masters and there were slaves there was no middle class there were slave owners and there were slaves there were children of slaves there were kids that they picked up off the street and brought in and this church came together so eclectic so different and they all they had all they had were the teachings of Jesus that had been passed on by word of mouth and all they knew was this before he left before Jesus took off he said if you forget everything else remember Love one another. This is the way people will know you're my disciples, if you love one another. Imagine a world where people were critical because of what you believed. You thought this Jesus guy was the son of God. But envious of us because of the way we treat one another and the way we treat people outside of our circles of one another. Now again, if you think I'm forgetting God and like, man, you're making this so human, it's also humanistic. This isn't church. I'm going to read you something from the sacred text and it's going to bother you. And I hope it does. I hope it sits with you and irritates you and makes you frustrated and makes you wonder if you ever want to come back here again. I hope the impact on you will be just like it was on the impact of the first people that heard this. The first people that heard Jesus say this and the first people who read about this later on. Because one day, Jesus was teaching and here's what he said. Matthew 25. He said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him. He will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, everybody listening got this. We're like, "Mm, I saw sheep, goats, whatever, okay, fine. And he goes on. He said, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king, the king is talking about himself. The king, the glorious king on his glorious throne. He says, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And all the people on the right were like, oh, man, we're so lucky. I'm glad we chose to sit on the right. Um, We're so blessed. How did this happen? What did we do to be blessed like this? How did we ever deserve this kind of honor from God? Why were we selected? Why are we the chosen? Why is it that we get to inherit the kingdom and gain all the inheritance in the kingdom? And it goes on. I'll tell you why. And he says, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. I've never even seen the guy before. I never gave him a sandwich. And it goes on. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. I don't remember that either. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Well, I mean, I invited Jesus into my heart, but that's the only invitation I remember. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick. Wait, wait. Jesus can get sick? I've been all through the Bible. I don't see anywhere where Jesus has been sick. Nowhere. I mean, he healed everybody else. I'm sure he was always healthy. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison. Whoa, what? They left that out of the Bible? Jesus was in prison? He broke the law? I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And they're thinking, okay, I don't get it. I mean, I visited God, but I visit in church. I visit... In mass, I visit at that conference and in that camp. I went into a cathedral. I, I visit there. There was an invitation where I accepted Jesus into my heart. And, and in my Christianity, I kind of kept, you know, just kept trying to get God to look after me. And, and you're saying that I was looking after you? How does that work? I thought you look after me, and you're saying I was looking after you. What are you talking about? goes on. Then the righteous, the, the group... The group that um, he was talking about, I'm sorry, um, the righteous, the group that he was talking to, will answer him and say, Lord, when did you see? When did we see you? When did we see you? And, 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 And don't miss this. This word see, Matthew 25, verse 37. They're saying, Jesus, when did we see you? Because that's what I was trying to do. All those Sundays and all those camps and all those conferences. I wanted to see you. I wanted to feel you. And it goes on, verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? I don't get it. When, when do we see you? I mean, the f- closest thing I think I ever got to seeing Jesus was we were having this like worship night, and man, it was just so amazing. And my favorite song came on. It was like, oceans, oh, oceans, and it's my favorite song, and I felt so close to God. Or or maybe as I went to the holy land, I went on that holy land trip, and oh my goodness, I walked the very streets that Jesus walked, and I came to that garden, Garden of Gethsemane, and I was there alone. I thought, this is where Jesus walked. This is so holy. I can almost see him. Or maybe as that woman's Bible study and that Beth person was talking, and when she opened opened up the word of God I was like I've never seen God like this ever before or it was camp and at camp and the whole vibe of camp I just felt God was there and I just got all the feels and Jesus says look those are all good things those are good you should do those things but let me ask you a question about those things when you went to the holy land who got the most out of that trip me or you well me I got the photos I can show you when you had that extraordinary worship time and, and, and you were just overcome with joy, who got anything out of that? Well, it was pretty much me. I was kind of buzzing that night. It was pretty cool. What about that awesome quiet time and you're reading that verse that you've read over a hundred times. And it's like it just jumped out at you at that point. Who was that for? Well, that was for me. That was you speaking to me. And that camp that you went to, who was that for? Well, that was... Kind of for my parents because they wanted me out of the house, but it was for me too. Good stuff. All good stuff. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. See, the essence of following Jesus isn't about you, it's not about me. And he finishes and he says in verse 40 He says, Then the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Wow. Wow. See, the Jesus model centers on the you beside you. And what happens is our devotion, our devotion to God is illustrated and demonstrated and kind of authenticated by your love for others. Not what you get out of God. Not how much you prove to God that you love him. It's illustrated by how you love others. It's not this ethereal, kind of intangible, invisible, spiritual thing. It's not this, I got something out of that message thing. It's not that stuff that we love and appreciate and church hop and hop and hop and hop until we find. It's not in that. Did you catch earlier that if you mistreat one of God's kids, all the worship singing and All the serving and all the generosity and tithing and all the sucking up to God won't make up for it. Did you catch that? Did you catch that the best way to honor God really has nothing to do with God at all? The most honoring thing you can do for God is to do something for one of his children? See, whatever you do for one of them, it's like you're doing it for God. What if it was that simple? What if it's as simple as what does love require of us? And to honor God, I will love you, and I will love you, and I will love you, and I will love you. And the harder you are to love, the more honoring it is to my Father in heaven. What if we just got that part right? It would change your family. It would change us. It would change our church and how we do life together. It would change our city. It has the power to literally change the world, which Jesus has been proving over and over and over again. Next week, we wrap this all up. Next week, we get really, really personal. And next week is Pentecost Sunday, where we're gonna be reminded just how personal God has gotten with us. But just a heads up, This whole love one another thing, we've just started the discussion. And after next week, you're gonna want to talk to some other people about this. Father God, lead us into what it looks like to love one another. Lead us into a way of life that shows and proves that we're your disciple, that we love you by the way we love the person sitting next to us and in front of us and behind us. Not as a project, not as a program but just the way we are, because that's who you made us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take some time to do communion. And if I could please ask those that are handing out the elements to please start doing that. As you take the cup and as you you take the bread, I just want to ask you to do one thing, one thing. Take some time between you and God. How much temple thinking have you been living in? And then remember what he did for you to get rid of that. And then make that commitment. I open myself up to you, Jesus, to love the other beside me. And once you've done that, take the cup, take the bread, and do it to remembrance of how much Jesus loved you to the point of dying on the cross, rising again, sending us his spirit so we can actually love each other the way he loved you. Take that time. Eat the cup, eat the bread, drink the cup when you're ready. And then we'll be asked to continue our time of worship.